Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Skip Button, a podcast all about the music you love to hate. I'm your host, Ben Barzilai. When I started researching the episode you're about to listen to, America was celebrating the 12th anniversary of Lil Wayne's The Carter Three. Up until 2009, Lil Wayne had spent nearly a decade calling himself the best rapper alive. That year, when he released The Carter Three, the prophecy was fulfilled. The album turned Wayne into a bona fide superstar. Thanks to the help of singles like Lollipop and A Millie, it was one of the fastest selling albums in the history of the US. It won the Grammy Award for Best Rap Album of the Year and was even nominated for Best Album of the Year, which in 2009 was rarefied air for a rapper. The success of the Carter Three, followed by two critically acclaimed mixtapes, meant that few albums were more hotly anticipated than whatever the hell Lil Wayne was gonna do next. But what he did next was something no one saw coming. What he did next asked the question, what happens when the best rapper alive stops rapping? What he did next was called Rebirth. Released in February 2010, a year and a half after the Carter Three, Rebirth was Lil Wayne's self-professed rock album. A mix of hip-hop, punk, and emo rock, the album found Wayne swapping out his white tees for cardigans, his synths and samples for guitar licks, and his normal rap cadence for auto-tune-drenched singing. As far as Lil Wayne albums go, Rebirth was a commercial flop, selling only about a quarter of the units the Carter Three sold. The critical reception was no better. Chicago Tribune critic Greg Cott panned Wayne's stylistic change and described his lyrics as crushingly banal. All Music's David Jeffries called the album a loud and ignorable bore, and LA Times critic Jeff Weiss called Rebirth one of the worst albums of the year. Since then, Rebirth seems to have faded away from Wayne's legacy, tossed aside as a minor blip not worth discussing. But what was initially forgotten and tossed aside might have been the most prophetic hip-hop album of the century. So, 10 years later, I reached out to friends. I wasn't really ready for how, like, okay I actually think a lot of this album is. Music writers. It's better than people gave it credit for. And music producers. I was always, like, questioning what's going on. And even got in touch with Chanel, an artist featured on nearly half of the album's songs. And I just wish that the world was a little more open-minded at the time. And together, we tried to answer the question, why did people hate Rebirth so much? I mean, what does that even say about, like, the run of music that was kind of capped off with the Carter Three and then, like, hurtled to earth with, like, Rebirth, you know what I mean? Like, I mean... <laughs> That's my friend Matt Bonaguro. If you've listened to the episodes on Nickelback or Black Eyed Peas, you'll recognize his voice. I've known him since before the Carter Three came out, so talking to him kind of helped me set the stage and jog my memory of just how big Wayne was when this album came out. If you were... In middle school or high school, when the Carter Three came out, you heard a Millie coming out of somebody's car speakers in the parking lot like yeah. every other day for like six months. I mean, it was just completely inescapable. The thing that I like about it is how ballsy of a move it is. Because people forget in 2008 and 2009, Lil Wayne was like arguably the biggest artist on earth. That's Drew Landry, 
a comedian and music writer for DJ Booth, who last year wrote the article, Imagining an Alternate Universe, where Lil Wayne's rock album Rebirth was a classic, where he fantasizes about what might have been if people were just a little more open-minded about this album. And to be at the height of your hip-hop career and out of nowhere decide, I'm going to make a rock album. Like, that's probably stupid, but it's admirable in what a weird decision it is. And I think people were just thrown off that the biggest rapper on earth at the time decided to make a rock album for no reason. Before we talk about why people didn't like this album, I thought it was worth asking why this album even happened in the first place. Why would the biggest rapper in the world do a complete 180 just as he reached the height of his powers? As Matt, I think, correctly posits, maybe Wayne just didn't see it in such dramatic terms. In terms of Wayne just being this kind of unstoppable creative force, I think part of like the duality is that for the public, Carter Three is kind of the culmination of his run. But for Wayne, I mean, like it was just kind of another thing. And he immediately went back and put out more music right after. I mean, like there's like this, there's this video I saw once that's just hysterical where um, somebody in Young Money goes up to Wayne, who's recording a song to let him know that either I think it was that the Carter three had done a million in the first week that it had gone platinum in a week, which before streaming was a huge deal. And Wayne basically is like, what are you doing here? I'm recording a song right now. Get out of my trailer or whatever. Like, he's not like, he's not going crazy that he got a milli. He's like, wait, I'm making music right now. Leave me alone. Lil Wayne is notorious for having insane amounts of music. He'll drop an album with 20 plus songs on it, an alternate version with 10 brand new songs, two mixtapes, and a collaborative project, all in the course of a couple months, which is to say nothing of the copious amounts of tracks that get leaked on the internet, and there are probably hundreds more that we'll just never hear. If Wayne is sitting on literally thousands of records, why is it such a big deal if 14 of them are these weird offbeat rock songs? To answer that question, we should probably talk about those 14 rock songs. People bashed Prom Queen. I liked Prom Queen. Prom Queen? I hated that song when it came out. It I, it really grew on me. Yeah, me too. Songs. Yeah, the first time I heard it, I was like, what the hell is this? And then it really grew on me. Prom Queen was the world's first taste of Lil Wayne the Rocker. Featuring and written by Chanel, who signed to Lil Wayne's Young Money label, Prom Queen has Wayne singing a grunge ballad about being a scorned high school lover, auto-tune turned up to 11. The music video depicts Wayne back in high school, a tattered scarf around his neck, singing about the woman who did him dirty as a teenager as corn accompanies him in the background. Yeah, corn. they're for real in the video. To say the least, it caught people off guard. I love the fancy underwear I sit behind her every year Waiting for the chance to get To tell her I'm the one she should be with Dude, to prepare for this, um, you know, me and Anita were listening to uh, like the music together and she just blew my mind when she listened to Prom Queen and she goes, so this is just kind of like Scare Boy, but like Wayne did his own version of it. Exactly. And it blew my mind because I had never considered that. They're like, Prom Queen is literally just the plot of Scare Boy, but he, but it's, but it's, but it's Wayne now. I'm just so mesmerized by that video for one, because again, it's like the first time Wayne visually sort of jacks the whole like white boy rock scene. He basically remakes an Avril Lavigne song, but as like a black man, which is crazy to think about somebody doing that back like, you know, 11 years ago. I think when Prom Queen came out, 
I thought it was going to be a one-off, a weird choice for a single that would ultimately culminate in a more traditional rap album. But then came Knockout, a song featuring Nicki Minaj. The video once again found Wayne donning classic pop-punk aesthetics, a bejeweled fedora, a striped cardigan, a tie dangling lazily off his neck. The first few seconds of the song are actually something that I think a lot about, because I think they capture the spirit of the album as a whole. It starts with a simple but assertive electric guitar riff, some classic pop-punk drums, and just when you think you've heard this type of song a million times before, Wayne comes in singing. Man, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but just to see Wayne in 2009 remake White Guy Rock in his own image and then have it be, once you go black, you never go back. Hey, Barbie, you like black men. Like, you know, centering his blackness in this otherwise, like, cosplay of emo rock. Like, that's brilliant in a yeah. way that maybe the song isn't brilliant, but the whole, the whole idea of what that is is fantastic. If people got the idea behind the song, they definitely didn't like it. Consensus from critics and the public was, Wayne, please go back to what you normally do. A critic from Behind the Hype said about the song, quote, Knockout sounds like it's set to an old Blink-182 drum beat and guitar riff, but without any of the fun. That's a good analogy for the album as a whole, end quote. Luckily, there was one single that did seem to appease Wayne's more traditional fan base. It's the song most people remember from this album, Drop the World, featuring Eminem. On this track, Wayne and Eminem rap about the pain they've endured throughout their lives, and how that pain turns into both anger and motivation. Despite the fact that it's one of a small handful of songs on this album where Wayne isn't singing or using overt rock instrumentation, it's probably the song on this album that's the most vulnerable, the most emotive, and ironically, Maybe even the most rock and roll. Never find hurt, but never cry. I work and forever try, but I'm cursed, so never mind. And it's worse, but better times seem further and beyond. The top gets higher, the more that I climb. The spot gets smaller, and I get bigger. Trying to get in where I fit in. No room for a nigga, but soon for a nigga, it be on, motherfucker. Cause all this bullshit, it made me strong, motherfucker. So I pick the world up and I'ma try. Yeah, it's definitely got a rock energy to it, like a headbanging energy. Yeah, more so than even Prom Queen or the, or the songs that had no rapping. I think this irony gets to the heart of why so many of his fans were upset about this album. Wayne was trying to tell his fans that he was a rock star. His fans were trying to tell him they already knew that. Charles Holmes from Complex said it really nicely in his 2017 article titled Lil Wayne's Worst Album is also his most influential. Quote, Rebirth's greatest misstep was Wayne's misguided belief that he needed guitars to enter the rock canon. Lil Wayne was already the world's biggest rock star, but he didn't realize it when he sold the world on Lollipop. Is rock music, is it guitars and is it drums and is it like, you know, a singer wailing or is it an attitude, you know? And of course your mileage may vary on that, but the moments of this album where Wayne is a rock star are not the ones where he's trying to make rock music. I think Drop the World is a great example. I mean, that chorus is pretty fantastic, and he and he's 
the passion is there and he's screaming at you and he's he really feels like he's gonna drop the fucking world on your head and like but yeah. but it, it's it's in a way it's like the least pretentious song on the album because he's just sort of rapping you know so the thing is we've been talking about this album like it's the first time rap was ever fused with rock music but this couldn't be further from the truth rap rock can be traced back to the 80s when run dmc enlisted aerosmith for their version of walk this way in the 90s Rage Against the Machine used the language of hip-hop to create a revolutionary rock sound. And of course, in 2004, Jay-Z linked up with Linkin Park for their mashup, Numb on Floor. All of these fusions were incredibly successful. So what makes Rebirth different? Why was this an example of rap rock that deserved to be eviscerated? Obviously, the actual quality of the music is one matter of debate we'll get to. But I think one of the hugest things was seeing Wayne not just do rock music, but so thoroughly, to some people, maybe co-op the actual aesthetics of rock. I don't think a rapper had really done that before. Whereas, and you mentioned uh, Numb Encore, I think is a great counterpoint. Yes, a few years earlier, you had Jay-Z and Linkin Park collaborate, set the suburbs on fire. You know what I mean? But what you, <laughs> you didn't did see fact. Jay-Z do is you did not see Jay-Z dye his hair red and get a bunch of piercings. And like wear fingerless gloves. <laughs> yeah, and like scream like <laughs> Chester Bennington. I don't even think in 2009 people were ready to see like a black artist be like at Wayne's level and do like, the, you know, like the fallout boy thing, you know what I mean? It was crazy for the time. So people's implicit biases around what a black artist is supposed to sound or look like probably played a huge role here. The other issue was that even though rap had experimented with plenty versions of rock, pop punk and emo rock were kind of new frontiers for hip hop. I think it was a type of rock that had never been combined with rap yet. Like we combined kind of like metal with rap and... uh but yeah, and rap rock was its own thing, but no one had really combined, you know, yet like kind of emo pop punk from the 2000s with rap. I kind of see Drew's point here. Wayne was trying to make a pop punk album during a time when the rock community hadn't really decided if they liked pop punk yet. Because right, I feel like exactly. the stigma of liking pop punk is gone now that we've all grown up and we're like, yeah, we did love Fall Out Boy. So maybe if he released this today, people would nitpick less that it sounds like pop punk because pop punk, it's, it's like there's no stigma with liking it anymore. But even if the rock community had wholly approved of this kind of rock music, there were still firm tenets regarding what a rocker was supposed to be able to do. They were supposed to be able to rock. And that's another issue with this album. Wayne doesn't really rock. We kind of get a taste of this a couple times before Rebirth comes out. Notably, when Lil Wayne performed a guitar solo to his Carter III hit Lollipop on Saturday Night Live. It's not great. So he's doing his big smash number one single, the biggest song he had ever done at that point. And then he pulls out the guitar and just like, does that sort of like kind of finger style, like bing, 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 solo, you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no feedback. It's not heavy at all. I mean, and it's funny because whatever the opposite of face melting is. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's just like, 
just like it's 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 exfoliating. It's an exfoliating guitar solo. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it gets back to the whole like rock purism thing. We're back in two thousand nine, back when rock was serious. You know, he was kind of like profaning the guitar by not really playing it. Whereas like in today's like kind of post irony world, I think we'd all love him holding the guitar. I mean, like you remember Black Beatles, Ray Schremer? They're all pretending to play the instruments, and it's funny. Right. Added to the song, but back then it was like people were ready to go in on Wayne for like even pretending to like be a guitarist, you know? But if Wayne's pedigree in rock music left something to be desired, you'd think that as one of the biggest artists in the world, he'd have enough clout to bring some rock musicians and producers into the studio and help flesh out the sound and maybe ground the album in some sort of authenticity. I've actually pulled up the track list and I'm looking around. Yeah, I'm looking at like all the producers. You see DJ Nasty, you see DJ Infamous, Cool and Dre. Those are people he had worked with on hip hop. So I think he kind of brought in a lot of otherwise incredibly talented producers and said, all right, now we're going to make an album with a rock flavor. All right, yeah. Cool and Dre, go get a guitarist. All right, get Travis Barker to do the drums on this one. I think if Wayne really wanted to do a completely different kind of musicality than he had done before, it's not that he doesn't have the ability to do it. He had to maybe really sit down and like put maybe pen to paper for once. You know, he doesn't write music. But for all the theories that I bounced off of Drew for why Rebirth wasn't the classic album he fantasizes it being, we kept coming back to one. Maybe people just weren't ready. Uh, It wasn't a classic in that, number one, it was just very flawed, but I also think people weren't ready for it. Yeah, when you listen to it in 2020, you realize it was kind of ahead of its time. It was kind of... You know, even if you consider it bad, it was kind of a bad version of what rap sounds like now. And that has been the big elephant in the room throughout this entire process. Because the same sound that in 2010 broke the momentum of one of rap's biggest superstars is now endemic in hip-hop. Artists like Juice World and Lil Peep flooded rap radio and streaming playlists back in 2018 with their fusion of rap and emo rock, making emo rap one of music's biggest buzzwords of the past few years. But for whatever reason, no one seems to credit Rebirth as the prophetic album that it turned out to be. So maybe the real reason people hated this album is because it just should have come out in 2020. But when you look at certain big rappers from the past few years that kind of either incorporate rock itself into their music or incorporate rock themes or grunge themes. And yeah, it sounds a lot like like what Rebirth sounded like, but kind of an evolved version of it. So I think if Lil Wayne released Rebirth today, it'd be less noteworthy. Maybe people would still hate it, but people wouldn't go, what the hell is he doing? Because it would, it would sound in line with what's popular right now. Something like Rebirth coming in now, like, come on, we would love that. It's hilarious. It's a hilarious album. The world was truly not ready to take something like this seriously 11 years ago at all. And it got, you know, ripped apart as a result. But just because an album may have missed its mark does not mean that it shouldn't be a treasured part of the artist's legacy. I would never go back and say Wayne shouldn't have made this album. I mean, like, I I, I firmly believe artists are... You know, I like the full dimensions of artists. I like artists when they succeed. I love seeing artists fail because it means they tried something and they did weird things and they pushed themselves. And like, right. to me, I, when you ask me, do I think Lil Wayne's a genius? I think unambiguously he's a genius. And I think part of why he's a genius is because he made absurd shit like this <laughs> that, that, that completely failed. But it's like, wow, when you go back to it, like, 
what a strange album that he made that I find myself humming sometimes, you know? Talking to Matt and Drew really helped me think critically about all the things that were working against this album. But I still had a lot of questions about the project. What was the inspiration behind it? How did it come together? And what were the people in the studio thinking when it was being made? Luckily, I was able to convince some people behind the project to help answer these questions. My name's Eddie Montia, and I am a uh, keyboardist, producer, and songwriter, composer. Eddie is credited on a number of songs on Rebirth, including Paradise, On Fire, and my personal favorite, Da Da Da. Worked on records from from uh, Little Wayne, Queen Latifah to Chris Brown to Gaga, Madonna, Michael Jackson, Nas, The Game. We started by talking about Eddie's relationship with Cool and Dre, a legendary hip hop production duo who played a huge role in Rebirth and in Wayne's career as a whole. I went and moved in with Dre, and I was Dre's roommate. And we were going to the studio every night. And that was all those records that happened in that era. And we did a Carter Three for Lil Wayne. And then we did Gym Class Heroes. We did a bunch of records that we did in that period. And one of them was The Rebirth. I think in between, after the Carter Three, the guy said, fuck, I like skateboarding. And, uh, I'm, and I think the people that he was around were turning him on to... Uh, you know, different records, probably Nine Inch Nails, probably who knows what other records he was listening to. And the guy just decided to to do a record that was totally just not him. And I, I and when I was working on it, I didn't think it was like an album. I thought we were doing because I felt it was like this is not really Wayne's kind of stuff. But I was like, what, what, what do I know? I mean, these guys are, you know, they probably know what they're doing with this. And it came out, and I was, like, really excited because I had, like, a lot of records on it. When it came out, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be great. And then now I'm doing an interview with you on what? <laughs> what is your show about? It's about a music that people love to hate on. Thank you for calling me for this one. <laughs> Why don't you do a new show called the, uh, Music That People Love to Love On? <laughs> well, were you... So I, try, I try to reach out to... I don't want to tell you who I try to reach out to, but you're like, no, thanks. <laughs> I was like so excited telling people last night, guess what? I'm going to be interviewed on a record I did that people love to hate on. I try to oversleep today, but I woke up anyway. I'm here. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. So all you haters that are hating, well, I'm here to give you some more shit to hate on. <laughs> so were you, were you disappointed when it, when it, came out and those like reviews and numbers came in you know i mean i was disappointed of course but you know like sometimes records take a minute to sometimes things come out and they and they and they take a minute to uh you know to start moving it just sometimes but you know i had i was always hopeful but uh yeah i was obviously after you know you kind of know after the fourth week fifth week you you know you know it wasn't gonna do that great i'm i mean for what it's worth i mean 
the songs I I really like the songs that you're on on this album. When you were recording them, um, or when you were working on these songs, was Wayne's was had Wayne already recorded over it, or or did it not? No, was it not even at that stage yet. No, a lot of times we do the track. A lot of times we do the track, and then Dre would be the Dre would go and and meet with Wayne directly. Dre would drive over to the studio that he was at. Wayne, you know, had his little studio. Well, he didn't have his studio. He, was at, he had a room out of the out of the Hit Factory, which is was the uh, it's a iconic studio. So Wayne had a room there. He had his he had his schedule. So Dre Dre would take the tracks to him, um, and and show him directly. So at the time, like when you were making it, did you? <laughs> were you thinking to yourself, this is a touchdown, or were you thinking like, oh man, I don't, I don't know about this? I doubted a lot of shit. Oh, you know, again, many times I didn't, I didn't know any better. Put it to you that way, because you know, hip hop was not. I was not born in hip hop, or I wasn't. Uh, you know, not not for any other reason. I was just doing. I was doing so many different styles of music. I I was not a, a hip hop connoisseur so i don't know you know i i i kind of like the challenge to fit in with them and, and be able to bring them what they wanted and that's basically you know I, I i wasn't sure to myself oh this is dope this is this is what's gonna happen so i didn't really know i didn't question it so when it came out do you remember because you know if you were if you were making these tracks before wayne even got on it where did you um like do you remember the first time listening to the album and what you thought about it See the entire record just didn't make sense to me that it wasn't a it wasn't a it wasn't a little Wayne, you know it wasn't a little Wayne record, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like it was like a it was like a detour of what he was doing, and when I heard these other records that I that I liked, I said, okay, well then I get it. This is kind of cool, you know. At that time, for for somebody to take off. And, and 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 move a little bit to the right of what they do. You know, people normally stay in their lane. He was just like, I'm little Wayne and I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want to do. Right. When you see when you when you when you when you go, it's like it's like when you go out of your out of your world and you enter another world and you enter like the rock world and you're a black rapper, you're probably not gonna be well received by critics because critics that are in the rock world are strong. You know, this is their, this is their shit, bro. They're the, rock and roll is what they are, what they live, breathe and eat. Here comes this black hip hop rapper from New Orleans. And now he's doing rock. Really? Dude. If, to the, if today you like read something negative or hear something negative about the album is, are you like, yeah, I guess. Or are you like defensive of that? Or are you like proud? No, of it? no, 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 no. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it because there's there's many people that love it. Mm. There's not, you know, there's there's haters, but there's there's lovers. There's people that love that album. There is somebody that loves that album more than any album that's ever been. Mm. There's somebody that loves that album better than any album that ever existed. There's somebody that thinks that's the most amazing album ever made. Believe it or not, and this is uh. This this record, the rebirth, is a an example of of uh, you know the liberty of people having a choice to opinionate and uh, like or hate a record, and love to hate 
<laughs> so I'm fucking closing out your show the right way, bro. You're doing my job for me, and I appreciate it. But there was still one more person that I was really excited to talk to. Chanel is a singer, songwriter, dancer, and all-around creative who, as I mentioned before, is a young money artist whose voice and writing is featured all over Rebirth. Chanel has a lot going on. She's still working on her debut album while adjusting to being a brand new mother in the midst of a quarantine. And yes, from time to time, you will be hearing some cooing in the background from her very cute son. But she was nice enough to take some time and get on the phone with me and really take me behind the scenes of what it was like to make this album. We talked about what inspired Rebirth, what she thinks of the album's critics, and what it was like to see the album, which was supposed to kickstart her career, fall short of expectations. I started by asking her about a project she did with Wayne years before Rebirth came out, one that kind of seems to be its sonic predecessor. I I think people sort of judged or were sort of skeptical of Lil Wayne's relationship with rock music and how authentically he was going about this. Um, And I was was doing research on Lil Wayne, I was doing research on you, and I was wondering if you could... um, Talk to me about what Badass Grasshoppers was. Ah! <laughs> um, so, okay. So the thing, the, the great thing about Wayne is he's, he was, he was never just a rapper. You know, he was very excited about learning different types of music and being creative and um, just testing what you could do in that booth. Like, he, want, he didn't want to be limited to just rapping. So... When we bumped heads, and not bumped heads in a bad way, when we bumped, ran into each other and Mac Main, like we just kind of just got creative and started creating real crazy sounding music for the time that we were doing it. But it was just, it was just a real fun time for us. Well, I mean, it was, I, I had never heard of it until I was doing research for this. And I, I mean, it was, it was crazy to hear that this is something that this kind of sound was something that Wayne had already like shown interest in. Was that something that you two had in common? Did you both like have uh, like a personal love for rock music or grunge? I'm going to say Wayne. No, Wayne just loved music. And this is something that I say to people because I grew up listening to a little bit of everything. He just liked to, he liked to experiment. So, no, he didn't have a super love for it. He just loved music. You, you could, he couldn't tell you what one was from the next. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But he appreciated something if it sounded and felt good. And so what we were doing was that. And what, the rebirth for him was that. He was able to use his voice in a different way. So mm. it wasn't your authentic rock so I think maybe some people who were in love with that were like, this is not rock. I just feel like back back when we were creating that, the, the genres had more black and white lines. Nowadays, I think the lines are kind of fading and everybody is fusing so much, which is amazing. Like, I really, I was ahead of my time. <laughs> <laughs> that That's true. That's one of the reasons I like, 
am so excited to talk to you because it's it's true. <laughs> like you and Wayne like really predicted where hip hop was going. It's crazy. It's crazy. But I just before we before we got on the call, I was like, let me take a listen to this album again because I haven't listened to it in full in so long. And I was just like, these this was a dope ass project. And I can hear <laughs> I can hear little Uzi Vert. I can mm. hear Young Thug. I can hear I can hear all these rappers that came after Wayne. I hear what influenced them. And yeah. I just wish that the world was a little more open-minded at the time, or maybe the album should have came out, and then the genre should have been said. Because I feel like that's what happened. It was like the super rockheads were like a rock album. Hold on, let me listen to this. And then they kind of they heard that auto tune. They heard this rapper singing and and rapping and. With a with a grungy type of voice, and was like, "This is not rock," right? You know what I'm saying? But you know, they didn't give him a chance. Yeah, and and how do you how do you feel the hip hop community accepted it? Oh gosh, that's the last. <laughs> <laughs> they are the and and I'm sorry to say it, but I mean, I always felt like a lot a lot of hip hop is a lot of popularity contest period and so if you don't if if everybody isn't already on the bandwagon i don't even know how one one song makes it in hip-hop it's like you know it's the bandwagon genre i want to back up because i want to know um how how you first started being a part of this project and and what your first impressions when you heard the music he was making was well, I remember coming into town and he played, was it America? He played one of the records and I damn near dropped <laughs> the thing in my hands. I was just like, and he was like, this is, this is, this is the album, this is where I'm going. And I was super proud of him and like, yo, this is going to be great. I was so excited, so excited. This is going to be great. He was like, yo, help me with this. So that's just kind of how it went. Promptly was probably the last song that we we did. He kind of gave me this track, and he was like, "Write me a single," because hmm. you know the most of the album was done, but he just needed that first song. And I was just like, "What? Okay." So uh, wow. that's how Promptly came came about. And then corn being featured in the video. Yeah. <laughs> I was crazy. I was like, I grew up watching you guys. <laughs> and oh I'm like, wait, corn. Like, Chanel, I mean, I really don't know who that is, but that's what's up. But <laughs> <laughs> so that's how like that's how much he he didn't grow up listening to that. He listened to what he grew up in New Orleans listening to. So but he was all ears for learning. But he really, really he, he's in his own little world a lot of the time. So right. So I think people were people were upset that he didn't do more uh, listening or uh, having different rock people be a part of the project. I, you know, Wayne has always been super experimental. He's always sort of had his persona has always been like I'm I'm going to do what I want. I'm not really that concerned about you know what makes the charts. 
Um, but this, this was, I mean, this was a full album of, of, this was like a whole departure. Do you know what made him do that heel turn and just say, actually, I'm going to do this for an album? It was the guitar. I mean, he might say something different, but from what I, what I saw, he was playing with that guitar for years before we started working on the rebirth. And the more he fell in love with the guitar, the more he liked music that had heavier guitar in it. Mm. And then it was just kind of like, well, I have this, these now I'm, I want tracks with, with guitar. And the music was sounding bigger than a rap track. So he wanted to use his voice different. So now he's singing more than just rapping. And, and that's that's just how it, it came. And he just wanted to play guitar on everything. Like every track, even whoever produced it, he was like, he played guitar on it. Really? Mm-hmm. So he, he's, he's playing guitar on, on most of the songs there? Sometimes it wasn't all the, the best, but <laughs> he wasn't, like like you said, like he was adventurous. He wasn't going to, he doesn't care what nobody said. Right. He was going to, even if he played the same thing that was already there, he wanted to play it live. If you remember the Father Like Son video, mm-hmm. this is something I never forget because I was just like, why do you have to do this? So <laughs> he played the guitar at the end of the song, um, Leather So Soft, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. He wanted to play the guitar in the video. And so the director's like, all right, get your guitar. So he gets the guitar, and Wayne's like, no, I need to plug it up. I need to turn it on. And they're like, just, just you know, fake it. Like, he's like, I'm not going to fake nothing. Hmm. I, need to, I need to play it for real. And we had to go get a guitar amp. <laughs> go to the store and get one or find somebody who had one because he was not going to shoot this last small part of this video without being able to play that guitar for real. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's the guitar solo you, you hear at the end of the This So Soft video. Wow. But so he, he really, can't. he really, he really like wanted to work on his chops like it was that was like important to him yes wow and i think he put the guitar down honestly he was dealing with these court cases he was dealing with Mm. going to jail and then uh when the album came out and and his community didn't accept it the way he felt like they would I think he kind of stepped away from this great start of something that he created because, you know, he influenced so many artists to go there, be different. Mm. Everybody was a rock star after that. So what did you know when the album came out? Because, you know, I know Wayne. Wayne is somebody who for a single album will record like hundreds of songs. Did you know how many songs were going to end up on when when it came out? I did not. I did not. I didn't know even which ones were going to be on the album. It was over, and the next day the album was was out. So right. I mean, but you must have been like you must have been pretty stoked, right? Very. I mean, the first time and like the first time I heard Prom Queen on the radio, I didn't even know, you know, that it had went to radio if 
you know, he told me to write him his first single, but I didn't know if I made the cut for that, if he liked it enough for it to be the first single. I was like, okay, this is this is the direction we're going. Wow. Like, so so one day you woke up and, and, and Prom Queen was out. Yeah. Wow. Like, when, it, well, when you were making it, was there any, I mean, it was really Wayne's call, but was there anyone in the room being like, I don't know about this? People wouldn't dare say that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Did no, nobody was pushing back against Wayne? Oh, no. I mean, yeah. we, we recorded so much that if something wasn't good, we just didn't, you never heard it again. Yeah. So that song, you just, it wouldn't. You wouldn't hear it. So you were in the room for like all of it, not just the songs that you were on, but you you were watching him record other stuff too, right? Yeah. Did you get a sense that his process was any different than it was for his other albums? Oh yeah, I mean, because he's a he's a rapper, so he he normally writes all his stuff. So when he writes as a rapper, he's very confident of himself and not that he wasn't confident with this but he was more you know turning around to to the rest of us like what do you think what do you think what what should i add you think something's missing or asking me to do parts and i'm like no you do it Hmm. so it was more him you know tapping into a side of himself that he wasn't really a hundred percent knowing what what to do and the process was different and with i mean considering how much clout he has was there ever did he ever reach out to somebody in in that rock world and and say like can you can you take a look at this or was it was it really just like cool and dre and and the usual suspects yeah it was the usual suspects this is the thing like wayne is very well, uh, Young Money was very much a hub of its own. Like, he didn't, though he, the world knew who he was, he did not know the world. Hmm. And, and I don't think he even knew that he could reach out to these, somebody and say, hey, take a look at this. I don't think he, he just trusted who he trusted. Wayne and you and his team were all, um, all super excited about this and we're having so much fun and we're excited to get this out into the world. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure it was even different for you because you were sitting there thinking like, this is it. I'm like, I'm on half of the biggest out rapper in the world's like new album. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at, at, was there a point where you realized that it wasn't going how you saw it going? <laughs> I saw some comments somewhere. And I was just like, huh? But then I had realized, like, his fan base is a rapper's fan base. The critics are rap radio and these super hip-hop, sometimes hip-hop critics are just uh, a little over the top with it. Just like, ugh. So when they were just giving it, there one too. I was just like, uh. And then you had the rock community, which he didn't do a lot of promo with them. He didn't do a lot of communicating beforehand with them. I think if he did that, then they would have been more, you know, um, understanding of what they were about to hear. 
no one knew what they were about to hear. <laughs> and it wasn't for eight, for both sides anything like they, they were ready for. It wasn't hip-hop enough, and it wasn't rock enough. It's like the mixed kid in school. They're not black enough for the black people and not white enough for the white people. <laughs> Well, that's, I think that's a good metaphor because it wasn't just the music. He, he came out, you know, with his, incre- he was skateboarding. He had, a, he was wearing fedoras and cardigans. And do you think that part of the backlash was just people weren't ready to see a black man, uh, like put on this aesthetic? So I don't really know what it was like from that side, mm-hmm. but I know from, from the black community, they weren't ready to see a black man wearing skinny jeans and playing the guitar and like it wasn't that wasn't their they're like what a rapper supposed to have diamonds and like because Wayne took all that off took all the jewelry off you know he just wasn't looking like what they expect or what they are what they are used to going to the store buying to try to look like Mm. they were like what we supposed to wear it, aren't <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, we kind of we hinted at this already, but the ironic thing is now here we are in 2020 and we have, we have people like Juice World and Lil Peep. Um, and emo rap was like a huge buzzword uh, like a year or two ago. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you, like, do you take pride in it? Do you feel sort of slighted by it? I take a hundred percent pride in it. I love that I was a part of the rebirth. I, I, I love that I can look at the girls of the, of that time who were rocking the nose, started rocking nose rings, or the, the the little skateboarder boys. Like you know, we did that. We did that, and had no idea that we were going to do that. Now, if, you, if they didn't accept the album, they sure enough accepted the the culture whole culture around it um what do you so what do you think has changed between 2009 and where we are now that album that whole experience that wayne gave millions of kids across america that came to that concert came to the tour saw what he wore saw how he sounded the tattoos on the face the piercings the the rock star attitude. The music would not be where it's at right now if it wasn't for him. So, do you? I mean, I, I don't. I don't want this to be like a prodding question, but do do you harbor any like any like residual resentment for you know what what happened with that album? Because you know, like we talked about, like this this was going to be your launching pad. Is there any part of you that sort of like looks back on it bitterly at all? Not bitter because I, what I do understand is when you're the first to do something, you know, you, you're never the one that gets the credit. It's the person that takes your idea and does it after you. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I wish that things would have went differently. I wish he didn't have that huge court situation and could have been there and you know helped catapult my situation off so i just think the timing like you said the timing was just was just wrong but maybe it wasn't maybe it was right maybe that's what we were supposed to do 
and I did I did my my thing over there. Created some really great memories and was on one of the biggest album rappers albums there is. And helped him become more than just a rapper. I think that that in my young beginning stages of my career that was incredible. But I think my time is still yet to come. Is there anything that we uh, we the fans have to look forward to? Yes. Um, I just got to finalize some business uh, stuff. But uh, I do have a project that I'm, that I'm dying for the world to see. And it actually has production from Cool and Dre and still has a little bit of that kind of 80s rock feel to some stuff. Great. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yay! Well, definitely when you do and you want to do a review of the, the album, I'm down to do it. Amazing. <laughs> I I will definitely I will definitely hit you up for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Skip Button. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, Shout out to Matt, Drew, Eddie, and a big thank you to Chanel. It was so amazing getting to talk to so many wonderful people about this project. Uh, Check out more of Drew Lantry's writing on DJ Booth, and make sure to follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Drew Landry. Check out Eddie Montia's website, eddiemontiamusic.com, and keep an eye out for more music from him, which will include credits on DJ Khaled's upcoming album. Of course, follow Chanel on social media and get pumped for her new album because I know I am. You may have noticed that the podcast has a new design. That is courtesy of Jack Confrey. Check out more of his work on his website, jackconfrey.com, and on Instagram at jconfreyart. And make sure to follow me at bars.near.me for more information on upcoming episodes. As always, anyone and everyone is welcome on the show. So if there's any topics that you think I should be discussing on the show, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Um, Thanks again, everyone. And I uh, hope you come back for the next episode of The Skip Button. Bye, guys.